you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and canna-curious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. This this is episode number 271. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you are listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 30,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you would like to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about a judge that barred the mention of pot legality from a criminal trial. John Boner, John Bonner's accused of stealing data and talking points, 24-7 legal weed sales, Colombia is posed to lead South America into the future, federal agencies looking at the benefits of Kratom, a solution to social equity could be franchising, and many other frosty nuggets, so stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up on the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. What's with the eggplant, Rico? <laughs> Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What have you got for us today, Rico? The eggplant was referring to my story today. So I got some spice from Lydia Moynihan from the New York Post. John Boner is accused of stealing data, talking points from cannabis lobbyists. One thing y'all may know not know about me is I'm, I'm a huge history buff. I've, I love written history and mostly because it's all entertaining lies and bullshit propaganda. There are a few famous history quotes and uh, two of my favorites are these. History is a set of lies agreed upon, Napoleon Bonaparte. History is written by the victors, Winston Churchill. And when merged, it comes out something like history is a set of lies written by the victors. Either way, it's true. And we're watching one of those moments unfurl in real time right now. It's kind of crazy to believe when the smoke clears and federal legalization drops, history will tell a tale of the most influential people throughout the process, being hardline, formerly anti-cannabis conservatives John Boehner, Mitch McConnell, and Charles Koch. First of which, crying-ass John Boehner is being accused of stealing his whole weed industry persona, political evolution, and eventual involvement 
according to a legal filing published by the New York Post. Would it be a surprise to anybody if John Boehner's entire industry swag's been alive from the jump? Probably not, but the lawsuit was filed by the 10 campaign, a legalization lobbying group named after the 10th Amendment establishing states' rights. The 10th Amendment, ironically, was also a federal government cop-out allowing states to abolish slavery only if the idea jibed with local politics. But that's another story for another day. 10 campaigns alleging the former House Speaker backed out of the deal to join them after stealing data and talking points and using them as his own. Boehner signed an agreement March 2018 to become 10 campaign co-chair. Less than a year later, he announced the the launch of his own National Cannabis Roundtable with Kathleen Sebelius as his co-chair. Take that. Boehner has since made millions from his involvement from the weed industry. Powerful Washington-based law firm Squire Patton Boggs was strategic advisor on the project and listed as a co-defendant in the suit. John Boehner is also a co-chair for uh, Squire Patton Boggs. Uh, 10 Campaign's founder and executive director James Paracola claims Boehner created a repackaged version of his idea and cut him out of the eventual profits. In a statement to the Post, he said, I did not make this decision lightly and realize we are taking on Goliath, but truth matters and we look forward to our day in court. Boehner served to legitimize the industry and pave the way for other politicians, elected officials, and influencers to come to the table after years of opposition to cannabis legislation. The suit le- alleges Paracola approached Boehner's aides and uh, SPB early 2018 after Attorney General Jeff Sessions struck down the Colum Memorandum. Despite in 2015 famously saying he was unalterably opposed to the legalization of marijuana. Because of his well-known cigar habit and broad conservative base, 10 campaigns saw Boehner as the perfect man to normalize weed. SPB loved the pitch. Both sides ex- executed NDAs, and Paracola sent over proprietary materials. The data-backed information shared with Boehner has since uh, become conservative playbook, uh, a conservative playbook with every agreeable talking point buzzword Jason Beck or Gretchen Gailey would agree with. States' rights, helping veterans with physical pain and PTSD, ease the opioid epidemic, treat epilepsy, aid criminal justice reform, increase tax revenue. Safe banking would have been in there too if it hadn't happened a few months later. Also, super critical is proprietary is a prior proprietary polling data that was shared with Banner showing most conservative states, uh, Americans, favored legalizing weed. Early 2018, the 10 campaign paid for and was ready to uh, distribute promo materials listing Banner as co-chair for their epic 420 launch that would have set the industry and country on fire. But April 11th, shocking everybody, Boehner tweeted that he'd be joining the board at Acreage Holdings. Paracola and 10 campaign tried to reel the former speaker back in, but he ghosted them and went on his own media blitz using all of their talking points. I remember this shit when that shit went down and it was crazy. And I wasn't alone. Per the article, Cheech and Chong even came out with a public statement saying, pot's over now that someone as boring as Boehner was on board with legalization. South by Southwest asked him to come speak on uh, uh, on board with them for a fireside chat in March 2019, where the moderator told Boehner his weed policy shift was so seismic, he'd never forget where he was uh, when he heard the news. Shit was like 9-11, man. Uh, had us all confused as fuck. But yeah, the 10 campaign suit claims Boehner's been raking in millions in fees since his announcement, living the high life by simply regurgitating their NDA-protected talking points and data. Boehner and SPB did not respond to repeated requests by the New York Post for comment. This is Rico Lameet, dopest dad on the street, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'm interested in what the rest of the team thinks about this, especially the lawyers in the room. Does 10 campaign have a shot at winning this? 
Depends what the actual claims are and what, uh, you know, what agreement he may have entered into with 10. And if what was exchanged with him, you know, was exchanged for the sole purpose of working with 10 or if he had the ability to, you know, use that information independently. Ideas generally are not protectable. So the ideas or talking points may not be something that they were, you know, uh, that Boner wasn't allowed to use elsewhere. Um, he might have been limited by an agreement with the 10. What an asshole, though. I mean, do we not have ethics at all anymore? Politicians I mean, and ethics. about John Boehner. Politicians and <laughs> ethics? There are no ethics and no morals in politics in the United States. <laughs> Let's keep it a buck. I wish the industry would just show Mr. Merlot the fucking door, really. Whomever's paying them all this money, you know, if they're actually plant-touching businesses, um, I, I would suspect that money they're paying him is not deductible. So maybe his gravy train will run out. I'm willing to bet that John Boehner is definitely getting paid as a private consultant um, through some type of uh, some type of other different company. So in that way, those deductions would be tax deductible. Uh, I I would gather that you're probably right. I was just being you know hopeful. John Boehner is pro safe banking. <laughs> not, yes, that's true. And not to mention too, when he was uh, when he was the Speaker of the House. He was the speaker that allowed for the Rohrabacher Far Amendment to first be placed into the appropriations uh, budget, which really allowed for the expansion of the industry of what we all see it as today. So he has been around. I want to see the dates and, and the information on that, Jason, because I do not believe it. Go to when Rohrabacher 4 was first put in the budget. It's not that difficult, Rico. He was super anti-cannabis, and then he left and like, oh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm pro-cannabis no. now. That's, that's not really the case. It's not really the case, but I love your imaginary world. No, it really is the case. And by the way, did you see that article about uh, how safe working in Canada? It is the case. This this is basically what happened. All of a sudden, John Boehner was totally against cannabis for a certain period of time. Then one of his fucking crazy fucking billionaire uh, wealthy-ass donors, they were golfing together on a golf course, and that billionaire told Boehner, said, hey, you know, this. I, I smoke weed every day. And then all of a sudden, Boehner was totally fucking on board. <laughs> you were there. I love it. <sighs> the face he makes. I just, you, let's start demanding ethical politicians. We can change this. Our votes count. Vote. Then, then, then vote for them. You guys keep on voting for non-ethical politicians, so... There are no ethical politicians, Susan. Right. We we need a we need an option for none of the above do over. Uh, but we have reached time on that headline. Next up is co-producer Jason Beck. His provocative spin keeps the show popping. He has proven to be one of the most resilient players in the weed game since starting his first store in San Francisco. Rated by the DEA multiple times and surviving the drama of the past few decades, he is legitimately the longest continuous cannabis retailer in the United States. What have you got today, Jason? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much, Susan. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Hope everyone is having a great week so far. Today, my story comes out of New Mexico, where Las Cruces City Council votes to not set operating hours for cannabis establishments. 
fucking amazing, guys. The Las Cruces City Council voted not to implement operational hours for the sale of adult-use cannabis on Monday. The City Council heard from the city attorney as well as members of the community during the meeting. The, the vote was 6-1 to one with only Mayor Ken M. He has a crazy last name. Voting yes to establishing hours of operation. He says, I am disappointed that the council didn't pass the law ordinance that will allow operating hours to coincide with liquor sales. I think anytime you have that type of traffic 24-7, that's a lot. It's, it's a lot of stress on both business owners, the employees, the city, said, said the mayor. Cannabis businesses can operate under their own set of hours, unlike alcohol prohibitions, where there is a set timeline of when you can buy alcohol. The council had originally proposed the operational hours of cannabis businesses to be similar to those of alcohol as a way to help destigmatize it. Business managers have seen the damage from cannabis increase since April 1st when it became legal in New Mexico. They say our busiest times happen to happen at 6 o'clock and 7.30, right when we're getting ready to start closing. If they limit our hours even more, we're just going to have a bigger problem, said Derek Fields, a manager at Las Cruces Dispensary. Joy and excitement. There are really not many places in the nation that have done this, said Chad Lorenzo, a cannabis consumer. It gives us folks who are working late who might come off the shift six or seven a little bit sometime to get some adult use or medical cannabis, said Louis Sosun, a cannabis consumer. He also says, I hope that we can be able to provide it as much as possible and, and as many hours of the day as possible, said Eric Hogan, a manager at a cannabis dispensary, and State Senator Carrie Hobum, who is an advocate for cannabis, said she was not surprised by the decision. Well, I will say this. I think this is uh, monumental that a municipality in New Mexico is doing this. I know that when we first created the medical cannabis ordinance, licensing cannabis dispensaries in San Francisco, we had a provision in there to allow, I believe if it was for one or for two 24-hour dispensaries in the city and county of San Francisco. Then, of course, with uh, state legalization, that all changed. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's the traffic like in a, a dispensary at one in the morning? Well, there's a college town, right? So Cruces is... I mean, so it could be good. This is an amazing precedence. If uh, they're successful, I, I want to watch this story and, and uh, see a lot of success with 24-7 cannabis shopping. Hell yeah. 24-hour drive through Set your shit up right next to the jack-of-the-box. <laughs> Definitely right next to the jack-of-the-box. Man, this is big news. I'm surprised people don't have more to say about this. I, when I first saw this headline, I was like, what? And, and just the mayor is the only one that was against it. I, I think this, this is huge, uh, personally. I think this is fantastic. I think this is actually the way that it should be. Business owners should be able to operate the businesses that both fit their schedule and their community schedule that they're serving. I can see a ton of people taking road trips out there to get their weed once everything else shuts down. I would be way more inclined to shop at weed shops if they were open late at night. I prefer to do all my shopping late at night, so I think this is fucking fantastic. Agreed. Yeah, and it's great for people, yeah, in the service industry who you know who get off work late and may have weird hours. This is fantastic. And if you if no lines at the Black Friday sale, if if you're responsible for children, you know. And you have children in your care all day long. When are you going to go shop for your weed? You can shop for it at night. So stay open late. Don't leave your kids home alone to shop for weed. <laughs> it's just 
no, no lines for the for the uh, for the Black Friday midnight shopping sales. I mean, come on, this is fucking amazing, guys. It puts them in a good position to develop their consumption lounges. And if you live in the desert, like I do, and I had to adjust to when your operating hours are, it is better to be able to shop at night or early morning. Um, it's too hot after 9 a.m. in the summertime. So I think this is great. Yeah, and the mayor's only, uh, well, his main point was that it's stressful to the businesses to be open 24-7. I'm pretty sure the ordinance doesn't say that you have to be. So, I mean, there, there's not even an argument. It's going to be really interesting to see if this works. All right, well, I guess we'll keep smoking the news. His beard was born and bred in Michigan and probably why it commands such a presence. But he's also the CEO of Fruit Slabs and an intellectual property attorney representing the cannabis industry. Up next, Brandon Dorsky. What do you have for us this morning, my man? Thanks so much for having me today. My headline comes from Olean Times Herald. It's New York court rules $600 million lawsuit against cannabis producer can proceed. This is an update related to Acreage Holdings. Multi-state operator Acreage Holdings and 30 other defendants are still on the hot seat after the New York Supreme Court denied a motion to dismiss a suit against them. The suit claimed the company participated in a scheme to illegally squeeze out David Fetter and EPMMNY LLC out of a medical marijuana license. The court ruled that Mr. Fetter has the capacity to move forward with the case, and the continuing trial could complicate Canopy Growth's planned acquisition of acreage, which was valued at approximately $843 million. Canopy is also named as a defendant in the suit. The lawsuit circles around a company that three defendants founded in 2013, NY Canna, which held a medical marijuana license and was later acquired by Acreage Holdings. The lawsuit alleges that EPMMNY played a critical role in obtaining the license and that the defendants violated an agreement concerning the ownership, management, and control of that license. The complaint seeks $200 million in damages as the claimed value of the license, plus an additional $400 million in punitive damages. The article was short. But this highlights the ridiculously inflated values of these licenses and the number of people who thought they could and should get rich quick off of just securing a license without doing the hard work of operating it. We see this type of behavior in New York, Florida, and almost every other state that has arbitrary caps or limitations on licenses for cannabis cultivation and our retail. This lawsuit would not exist if it was an open season on licenses in New York. Uh, I mean... I don't want to see anybody have their hard work go unpaid for. And if if this party had an interest in this license, they should be compensated. But I'm sure I won't be the first or the last to say that $200 million just for your license is absolutely ridiculous. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. Acreage is in the news this morning. And it's all shit stories. (laughs) The beard said it all. There's nothing more to say. It's just a mic drop. Oh, Acreage's uh, PR is working uh, overtime this morning, <laughs> getting hit from all angles. Or they're not working at all because they've all been fired. Would that mean they're hardly working, Jason? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I would consider it hardly working, but I definitely would c- consider it uh, collecting stimulus checks. 
Hey, I, I, I got a license I'll sell for $200 million. And uh, that was an awesome mic drop there, Brandon. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, ridiculously inflated. Uh, um, nobody wants to do the hard work. And they just want to buy their way in. And that's not the way this has ever worked, folks. So, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, go, go, go haul some plants up into the woods and water them every day. Thanks for having me up. Have a great day. I'm sure uh, John Banner is getting his cultivation skills up right now as we speak. <laughs> I picture him more as like a cigar roller, personally. I wonder if he's tried a magar. He's from, yeah. I bet he's never even, he's never even touched the plant. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if I buy that. John Boehner riding around in a golf cart in the middle of a field with Nick Lachey out in Ohio. Smoking on some Smoking a Swisher sweet. (laughs) Smoking a Swisher (laughs) with the gut still in it. Oh, that was fucking good. All right. Well, coming up to the stage next, she's an attorney at law focused on bridging the gap between cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. Coming next to the stage is the founder of the cannabis blog and podcast, Shall We Talk? It's Shalina Panu. Thanks so much, Jason. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Colorado cannabis sales keep declining while surrounding states keep legalizing. On April 12th, Denver Westwood reported that Colorado was in the middle of a nine-month decline in cannabis sales. That number is still decreasing, as Westwood reported on May 1st, that although Colorado's cannabis saw an increase in sales this past 420, it wasn't enough to get them out of their continuous decline, even seeing the medical market declining as well. On January 1st, Colorado's new set of laws that restrict medical cannabis recommendations became effective. As such, multiple medical cannabis clinics and even physicians either paused their services or shut down completely. Further, there is now a Colorado law where medical patients are only allowed to buy 8 grams of cannabis concentrate versus the previous 40-gram limit. This could be a factor in why sales have been decreasing for the medical market, but as for recreational, Colorado has seen a steep increase with out-of-state competition as now more and more surrounding states have begun legalization efforts. Additionally, the market in Colorado is in fact extremely saturated for many reasons, with one commentator on Westward's Facebook page saying that the market is becoming that of the breweries where not all are going to survive. According to Colorado's Marijuana Enforcement Division, there were lower dispensary prices and even new expectations from customers as the price of whole ca- wholesale cannabis flour fell over 46% on average between January 21st, 21, January 2021 till April 2022. Chaz Kobayashi, an operations manager for um, dispensary High Level Health, said the following to Westward. With the overproduction of cannabis, there's been a race to the bottom, and it affected the wholesale market first. In 2020, it was about $1,300 to $2,000 or more per pound. In 2022, prior to 420, pounds dropped down to $400 to $800. It has affected the purchasing habits of customers, so we had to switch up what our goals were from previous years on 420. On 420 of this year, High Level Health was focused on attracting as many customers as possible into their shop by offering a $4.20 deal for an eighth of an ounce. This was done in hopes of consumers making add-on purchases or to think of their dispensary in the future. Turns out their promo saw a 400 to 500% increase with customers coming in versus 420 from last year. What are your thoughts on the current and future state of Colorado's cannabis market? My name is Shalina and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I wonder if people are moving out of Colorado 
for the same reason. You know, a lot of parents moved to Colorado for their children uh, when they first legalized. And I wonder if that's affecting their residency. Um, we have got Michael up from the audience. Michael, did you want to weigh in on Shalina's headline? Yes, ma'am, I did. Thank you. Michael Diaz-Rivera, owner of Better Days Delivery in Denver, Colorado here. And I just wanted to say it's the trappers that move the market. That's who always have. And dispensary owners won't admit it, but they know that it was the other states that all of our weed was pumping into that was really pushing the economy. And now the other folks are legalizing. That's why the market's stabilizing. And then also the same thing, the Karens have gotten in the way. We can't get our concentrate limits. We can't get our extended plant count limits that we've traditionally been used to. And that's hurt the market. And so it's interesting as someone that just launched a business in the marijuana market, I'm just going to ride the waves and work it out because that's what hustlers do. Thank you. Better days are on the way. Love that, Michael. Love your attitude and just keep it moving, brother. Yeah, appreciate your comment, Michael. And I, I tend to agree with him that Colorado sales are being eroded by other states going legal and some of the state's east of Colorado going legal, where there were people from the east coast coming to Colorado to get their cannabis lawfully, and they can go to other places now. They don't have to go as far west. So that's certainly going to eat into Colorado's market, as well as the fact that these arbitrary caps and reductions on concentrates make it a less attractive place to shop for people that want those types of products. So they can go to many other markets and get them. Yeah, you could just go to Oklahoma, right, Brandon? Exactly. No limits in Oklahoma. <laughs> No limits, Oklahoma. It's gonna be okay. The booth, the the, you said the booth, booth. You gonna need a booth fest. Good luck with everybody. You know, Colorado has been—they've been slow to integrate cannabis into their destination experience. I've worked with Colorado Tourism, and I think that's where they can bump this back up. Because do you want to go to Oklahoma or do you want to go to Colorado to a sweet place up in the mountains and have your bud there? So I think when Colorado step puts the gas on their tourism product with their weed product they could they can draw more people from out of state and create you know in-state experiences as well eric i love that you brought that up sorry go ahead michael no i was saying the same thing i agree if we could tap into the tourist market colorado's so beautiful so much nature why not smoke in it i I have it's amazing Uh, outside of Eric, your comment, I also just found it interesting, like why they are decreasing the amount for, for medical patients. Um, I, I'm not too, I haven't been following up on that part. So I would definitely want to dive in more about that and see why they decreased it for them. Just to jump in, I don't want to take up too much time, but, um, basically suburban moms are mad that some kids have gotten cannabis hyperemesis. I said that wrong, which it is a real issue with our kids getting this issue, but it's, they're putting the responsibility on the market, on the industry rather than the parents. And so now they're, they've taken down the concentrate limits and made it. So what we had was extended plan counts, which a lot of the trappers, that's what they were doing getting extended plan counts and shipping it out now that they've lowered that so customers can't get the amount that they were traditionally getting it's hurt the market i don't know if i answered your question or rambled but thank you grown-ups need to talk to children about cannabis and alcohol and sex and all the adult things and uh you know we we won't have as much of a problem but um that's my pet issue we're going to 
quickly relight the room. It should all be left up to the parents. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Often opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice in the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Our next correspondent is well-known as the CMO of industry-focused digital event platform Event High, but she's recently expanded her reach as co-host of the groundbreaking women-focused Blunt Brunch series, which has taken the industry by storm, offering female industry power players pleasant piff to puff on with their power phase. Y'all know who it is? Adelia Carrillo. What you got for us today? <laughs> Good morning, Rico. Good morning, everyone. Today's article is Can a Carnival Marijuana Festival Coming to Muskegon? downtown arena. Uh, Muskegon's downtown has given approval as of April 26 by the Muskegon City Commission to two cannabis consumption events. The first event is actually a carnival-themed cannabis consumption event. It's going to be happening this summer, followed by a second event happening in the fall at the city's baseball field. Now, the Canna Carnival will, with, uh, will have carnival rides, games, cannabis edibles, a smoking consumption area, a place and will be planned for August 20th inside and outside the Trinity Health Arena. Now, the Falling Leaves Festival, uh, which is also the second cannabis consumption event, will be September 24th through the 25th at the city's Marshfield on Laketon Avenue. Um, The Mesquite Muskegon City Commissioner Michael Ramsey says these sort of events are not new to us. We do consumption events all the time. They're just done with alcohol. And cannabis now is just as legal as alcohol. So who is behind these events? An organization called Esperavet, a a West Bloomfield company owned by Michael Webster. Um, He states this has been, I won't call it a rolling out of the red carpet, but it's a tantamount to that said Webster, who explained that he can't get officials in other communities to even return his phone call. So what people can expect from the Canna Carnival, um, as we mentioned, they're going to have various methods of cannabis consumption. Uh, This is also going to include cannabis-infused popcorn and cotton candy. They're going to feature a time-travel-worthy return of some of the 80s and 90s most iconic entertainment, such as video arcade games like Donkey Kong, Miss Pac-Man, They're going to have face painting, a DJ, carnival games, and carnival rides. Um, Smoking will not be allowed inside the arena, but they do have an outside smoking area that's going to be blocked off. And then the carnival rides are going to be in their arena's parking lot. Now, for local businesses, they do have plans to shield the event from these establishments. Um, And details of the fall festival at Marshfield are still being finalized. Um, It is expected that activities will occur away from the actual uh, field um, and that the cannabis consumption component will actually be under a large tent. Um, Muskegon City Commission does have one commissioner, Eric Hood, who was the only one to vote against the cannabis events. Now, he didn't he wasn't necessarily opposed to the actual cannabis events. He was actually opposed to where they wanted to hold them. He expressed that Marshfield, he doesn't think is an appropriate venue. Uh, He also voted against using the field as a consumption event location earlier this year. Um, Now, Michael Webster um, from 
the one that is hosting these events, uh, as a black cannabis business owner, is just getting started. He also shared that he is planning on hosting on bringing local expungement events uh, to help those previously convicted on cannabis offenses to clear their records. Um, and he is planning to work with the Grassy Knoll Dispensary uh, on an expungement clinic. Commissioner Rebecca St. Clair added her support for the expungement clinics as well as the festivals. And um, she stated in Muskegon, we have made the choice to be a cannabis friendly community. And I believe that involves whatever opportunities are available to the community members as the entrepreneurs who are trying to make a good living at this. Um, So just looking at this, it's exciting to see what Muskegon, Michigan is doing uh, for uh, cannabis events. And I just love to hear what our team members think of this article. This is Adelia, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. This sounds like so much fun. I love this. Uh, You know, cannabis is medicine, but it's also... Uh, a tool to help you have more fun. And I think that uh, less alcohol at a carnival and more cannabis just makes a lot of sense. Especially when they have the the clowns that make the funny animals out of the balloon, Susan. Especially then. Yes. I love that this stuff is happening in the Midwest too. You know, it's just, it's great that it's just, we're seeing this kind of stuff just pop up around the country. So again, it's just kind of normalizes it and you know, reaches people that maybe, you know, just get them thinking a little bit. Like they see that people are acting just like everybody else. Like if you were, you know, if they were pouring Tito's vodka or some, you know, craft beer thing. So I think it's just great. Glad you brought this to Debbie. I thought we had Mary coming up, but um, anyone else want to comment on that? Where the Michigander's at? Where you at? Let's go. Let's go to this carnival and let's keep smoking the news. All right. We'll come up next. If Bono had an anaconda, his name would be Ericus Lareda. But Bono doesn't have an anaconda because he has a stunt double named Ericus Lareda, known for his good deeds and being a true steward to the outdoor plant, this freedom-fighting farmer's friend, and Bono's, not to mention an award-winning writer, journalist, and event producer, and content ninja. Here to give it to you straight, it's Ericus Lareda. What do you have this morning for us, Eric? That was lit, Jason. Thank you very much. Hey, everybody. Uh, great to be here today. My headline is from the Beard Brothers blog, and it's Colombia poised to lead South America into the future. Um, before I jump in, just want to add that I've made multiple, multiple trips to Colombia. I still have family there, and it's a really fascinating, beautiful, and very large country with all kinds of ecosystems, several of them ideal for indoor and outdoor cannabis cultivation. The last time I reported there was in 2019 for Weed Maps News, and I wrote about the Canadian money pouring in there, Colombian startups, and some of the innovations happening as the country moves from its narco fame in the past to a global player in the licensed market. So jumping in the article, Colombia, the land of coffee, arepas, Shakira, Sofia Vergara, and don't forget Juanes and J Balvin. But among its many varied and vibrant exports and claims to fame, Colombia, thanks to uh, shows like Narcos, is more often than not known for drugs, cartels, and the associated violence intrinsic to them. Unfortunately, the stereotype of Colombia being a haven for drug cartels is rooted in history. Still, thanks to reforms instituted by the Colombian government, Colombia is poised to lead South America into the future when it comes to narcotics policies. I thought that was a strange word choice there. Um, Drugs and cartels that run their manufacture and distribution in Colombia have always held massive political sway. A great example is the Medellin cartel run by one pop, Mr. Pablo Escobar. 
even tried running for government at one stage. Thankfully, his bid was unsuccessful. Political of figures opposing drug trafficking and enforcing the extradition treaties for apprehended cartel members effectively had targets painted on their backs. One such example was Luis Carlos Galan, a liberal politician and journalist assassinated on August 18, 1989, while running for president of Colombia. Although substantiated, his killing was most likely due to, due to his extremely vocal stance against the drug cartels. And I can tell you that's absolutely what it was about. His political legacy was carried on by his son, Juan Manuel Galan Pachon, on his return to Colombia. As a member of the Liberal Party, he served as a senator in Colombia, and he is currently a candidacy for the presidency. The younger Galan is a strong proponent of drug policy reform and an outspoken advocate for drug legalization. He has openly called for a public discussion on, to on the topics of decriminalization and legalization across the board. Most notably, he is the author of Law 1566 of 2012, which designated psychoactive drug use, abuse, and addiction as a public health concern to be treated as an illness. This law effectively encompasses drug treatment within the already existing publicly funded healthcare system. He is considered to be Colombia's author of the law that legalized medical cannabis. He has been an important person in Colombia's progressive cannabis legalization plan in various ways. Uh, now the, this article kind of jumps in about drug policy reform. And as it says, uh, we have already mentioned Law 1566 as one of the steps taken by the Colombian government in reforming its policies on drugs. Now, where does cannabis come into it? Colombia began its journey toward cannabis legalization in the 1980s and currently has one of the world's most advanced cannabis regulation systems. Following Uruguay uh, becoming the first country in the world to decriminalize the rec recreational use and possession of cannabis in 2012, Colombia's government decriminalized the possession of up to 20 grams of cannabis in the same year. They then announced in 2015 that the production of up to 20 cannabis plants was legal. The growth of these policies through legislation and court actions shows that Colombian politicians are paving the way forward in cannabis regulations for South America. The decision to decriminalize recreational cannabis use was made in, great, in part to replace ties between drug cartels and the cannabis trade with more transparent government oversight. Uh, when in 2012 voters in Washington and Colorado became the first in the United States to embrace uh, adult use cannabis, these were the initial moves that toward establishing a globally regulated cannabis market in which Colombia would be playing a role. I'm going to add here that there was also Decree 613 in 2017, which actually created a legal framework for Colombia's recent uh, current license framework. And that's what I've got today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Gracias for having me up, and please spell Colombia the right way, whatever you think about it. C-O-L-O. It's Colombia, not Colombia. So C-O-L-O. But you see it everywhere, man. I see it in, in publications, travel books, official decrees like here in the U.S. People can't get this shit right. I don't know what's so hard about it. I think they call it a power bottom, Jason. Okay. Uh, Eric, you said that they had uh, places in Colombia that were good for indoor cultivation. What, what well, makes a place good no, for indoor? I was, that, was a little, that was a little joke for Jason. It's actually very, I don't, I don't know of any indoor. There's mixed light and outdoor. I mean, it's an ideal climate. You got 12-12 uh, there, you know, because it's on the equator. So it's just optimal. It's super rich, obviously, you know, with the huge agricultural sugarcane coffee. I mean, the best coffee in the world. Uh, so you, any, you throw a seed somewhere, it just grows. So you've got rich volcanic soil. You've got alluvial soils. 
from the rivers, a lot of great river systems in places like Cali, which is why that area is known outside of Cali is an area called Palmyra, which is um, where a lot of uh, the genetics that ended up here came from originally. You know, a lot of your sativa type, uh, uh, those land races, the, the tall, thin, late finishers, a lot of that stuff, Colombian gold, et cetera. So it's a great the environment's wonderful, and there's a lot of the thing. The reason why it's so hot is because obviously you have uh, lower, la you know, the labor is much uh, cheaper. Uh, the land is is much more inexpensive. You have a lot of open area, uh, you know, agrarian areas that were once under cultivation for things like sugarcane that now are dormant. So um, it's just that's why the Canadian money and other uh, external uh, money has been pouring into there because they know it's on it's on down there. So they're letting outsiders own businesses there? Uh, they have to be in partnership. So like the Canadians will have a Colombian partner. Um, so I know there's some big, there's one very big California company that was down there uh, a couple years ago before the pandemic and they were really serious, but I think um, they found it was a little difficult and they backed out. But um, there's a ton of, uh, especially uh, Canadian money. Actually, the article I did for Weeb Maps in 2019 is a pretty deep dive. If anybody wants, I could send them that link. It gets much more into it. Please do. Put it in the sheets. Sounds like an amazing place to live. What it's does it gorgeous. take to be a citizen it's there? It's gorgeous. It really, I mean, you've got everything. You've got Caribbean coast, you've got Pacific coast, you've got the mountains, the Sona Cafetera, which is the, you know, the coffee area, which is highland, super cool. You know, it's a very super amenable client, uh, climate. And um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's even, uh, the Caribbean coast is stunning. Well, you've heard of Cartagena, the famous uh, Caribbean port city. Um, just every kind of, uh, and then the cities are really dynamic. Medellin, especially, which used to, you know, you've heard of the Medellin cartel, but it's also a, a really incredible city that's really, both of Cali and Medellin have really come out of that really dark era and are really blossoming as tourist destinations and just uh, really vibrant um, culture and community. It's one of the, the top ranked places to become an expat. Yeah, I'll be spending, well. I'll be spending some time down there in my later years for sure. Um, my lady's Colombian, and she's already built a couple houses down there. So you guys come down and visit. I love it. I heard the black people friendly. Well, hell yeah, man. We got the whole Pacific Coast is, is um, you know, Negro. It's, it's a black Colombian. We have an Afro-Colombian, big Afro-Colombian community. They have their own music called Choco. Super, you hear a lot, if you're familiar with reggaeton, mm -hmm. you hear a lot of Choco rhythm in that. So it's... Yeah, there's a really of, vibrant Afro-Colombian community. Yeah, there's a lot of crossover with a lot of crossover with with my people, the Panamanians as yeah, well. Yeah, man, it's the same deal. They just Panama used to be a Colombian province, so yeah, mm -hmm. it's it's uh, it's a lot of that. It's very similar, actually. I love it. So let's keep it moving here. <clears throat> this badass Canada mom's co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association, chair of the Bar Association of San Francisco Cannabis Law Section, founder of the San Fran Equity Applicant Pro Bono Legal Project. And it'd be a surprise to absolutely nobody if ever revealed that she sweet-talked her way into all them titles. Once y'all <laughs> hear her voice, you will understand. Laura DeCaro, what's the news today? Oh, I love you, Nico. You're awesome. You are so awesome. Um, I, I have a story um, for those of you who thought that 
it might be safe to move cannabis around the country again um, with the feds looking at, at more important issues out there and harder drugs. But nope, the feds have proved again that they can ignore the will of the people, even in the jurisdictions they purport to represent and prosecute people for pot. The uh, article is entitled Judge Barr's Mention of Pot Legality from Criminal Trial. It's by Sam Reisman. Uh, it was published in Law 360. So apparently, a federal judge in Maryland has approved the prosecutor's request to bar any discussion of cannabis legalization from the upcoming trial of a man indicted for criminal conspiracy to traffic cannabis from California to Maryland. Both jurisdictions were at least medicinal is allowed. Uh, Maryland is struggling with adult use that's on their November ballot. Um, in the decision published Thursday, the U.S. District Court judge, Stephanie Gallagher, wrote that the defendant, Jonathan Wall's belief about the legality or illegality of marijuana under California law is irrelevant to the elements of the government proving in its case, uh, and that accordingly, you know, to this article, accordingly, his defense counsel would be precluded from introducing evidence related to uh, any non-federal jurisdiction cannabis laws. But this isn't about beliefs. This is about language in the indictment that was attacked by Mr. Wall's attorney, who is a very accomplished Jason Flores Williams, well-respected civil rights lawyer out of Southern California, Colorado, and clearly operating now over in, in Maryland. Um, but apparently, arguments or evidence, and this is the one thing that sort of does make sense to me, um, uh, with regard to uh, what the what the court is saying, is arguments with regard to a state law issue are not relevant to the elements necessary to prove a violation of the Controlled Substances Act. However, in in the actual indictment, it does talk about conspiracies taking place in Maryland and in other jurisdictions. So that's not entirely settled law. The court is also excluding arguments and evidence relating to an equal protection clause challenge um, made by Mr. Wall's attorneys, such as references to the wealthy or the celebrity individuals who are engaged in cannabis industry and getting away with it. Um, Judge Gallagher's decision is apparently based on an unpublished opinion. Um, in For those who don't know, uh, unpublished opinions are essentially not precedential. You, you can't rely on it um, in, in making legal arguments to another court. And it actually is a little bit of the, the issuing court's signal that they don't even want it to be precedential. It was really, really case-specific. Um, Anyway, uh, according to the Department of Justice's motion in limine, which was had raised this this issue, the fact that other jurisdictions have legalized marijuana, decriminalized marijuana, are considering decriminalizing of certain quantities of marijuana, or have declined to prosecute individuals for crimes involving marijuana, is not relevant to the issues at this trial. But I would argue that it is because of the federal guidelines that would have been issued would still be in place, but for the uh, former guy's uh, attorney general's actions in 2017, um, that the, uh, you, you know, the, the federal government's attorneys have indicated that they need to prioritize the people's priorities and that where a state has implemented um, particular um, laws with relation to cannabis, the federal government won't come in and interfere. I think this is more about you know the the trafficking, the t 
taking it from California to Maryland. So we'll be interested to see if any um, dormant commerce clause issues come up. But, uh, you know, it's still not safe. Still don't move it around, folks. Uh, this is Laura DeCaro reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Yeah, this, this is almost as bad as, as, as his attorney's uh, defense argument, in my opinion. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is, you know, um, Flores Williams is a really good lawyer. Um, he has a, a strong track record. Um, he's done some really, really good civil rights work. So, you know, I read, um, I read a little bit of what they submitted to the court, and it, it may have been a little bit rushed. I'm not entirely sure what the arguments they were trying to make included, but I think they're just kind of throwing everything they can at this. Laura, the argument that the main argument they're trying to make in this is is saying that this is already happening in so many other states that this should be this this shouldn't be this shouldn't be charged due to the fact that it's legal in so many different states, and that's just that's just not a valid valid argument in a federal court. I don't. I mean, I don't think that that's really what they were saying. I think what they were saying is that um, you know the defendant believed. Uh, that the law was different than it is, which is also a bad argument, right? I mean, Brandon, I'll tell you, as a lawyer, you can't say like you know that I didn't know what the law was. Ignorance of the law is no defense. That's a pretty standard statement in legal circles. But um, you know, I think that there is some potential. Um, I think what, you know we've talked about jury nullification, right? There's some potential for laying the seeds in the jury's mind about what this guy was, what his mental state was, you know, did he have the intent to commit a conspiracy because did he really understand that this was an unlawful act? I don't know. I don't know that, um, intent is, um, is an element in the specific charges that he's facing, but I think it is uh, potentially relevant to his state of mind. Although, you know, I mean, good luck finding, um, you know, 12 jurors in Baltimore who don't understand what the state of cannabis laws are in the U.S. So I think they probably will understand a little bit about that. They can probably sneak in some references here and there. Federal trials are always, always different than normal state trials as much as you think the general public is aware. They so many times are not aware or turn a blind eye or pretend to be that ostrich and just stick their hand in the sand and watch the steamrollers come on over and steamroll. Yeah, that's possibly true. But, you know, in Baltimore, they've um, expressly declined to prosecute cannabis uh, possession cases. And actually, the state of Maryland just had a huge fight over um, ignoring past cannabis convictions. So the um, their legislature had passed a bill last legislation that their governor uh, vetoed. Uh, but then the legislature overrode his veto to um, specifically work toward expungement and um, disregard for cannabis convictions. <clears throat> Excuse me, folks. Um, after 2014, so it's been in the news, um, and they have, like I said, they have adult use on the ballot in November. So I think it's in their face. Yeah, this um, uh, I know Freedom Grow has a truck out there that is circling around the courthouse uh, trying to educate the public um, about jury nullification as well as some other different uh, criminal justice reforms and things that need need to take place. Um, so I want to thank them for their efforts out there. But ultimately, I hate to be the, the, the bearer of bad news. I think ultimately this kid's going to get convicted. He's going to be he's going to be facing anywhere from 10 years to uh, 10 years to life. And I wish he would have just took the deal. Yeah, he's definitely um, facing 
at least 10 years with these charges. Yep, 10, 10 to life. And enough of that. Let's keep smoking the news. Sad story. <laughs> Sorry. Up next to the stage, she's a Florida-based entrepreneur leading the charge for the ultimate cannabis brand, lifestyle brand, Black Booty Cannabis. Also the founder and CEO of Minorities for Medical Marijuana. Coming up to the stage, it's Roz McCarthy. Good morning, everybody. Thanks so much, um, Jason. Um, it's Roz McCarthy here. And this article is coming to you from Rolling Stone. Um, it's entitled Franchise and Social Equity, and it's by Peter Sue. And Peter is a um, actually in the audience. So if you raise your hand, Peter, we want you to weigh in on your story because this came exactly um, – um, it came specifically specifically from you and our connection on LinkedIn. So the story in briefly is social equity in cannabis is having a resurgent moment with recently legalized states like New York learning from the mis- mistakes of earlier programs and finally giving social equity its proper due. However, despite good intentions, most would agree that the social equity programs currently instituted have largely been over- underwhelming and underdelivered. The reasons for those are for this are varied and myriad, but they are highlighted nevertheless. So again, Peter said he had an idea and was thinking, what about the basic franchising model, which provides the franchisee not just its trade name, products and services, but an entire system for operating the business. The franchisee generally generally receives development support, operating aid, training brand standards, quality control, a marketing strategy, and business advisory support from the franchisor. The model ensures more stability, security, and possibly immediate capitalization for the cannabis dispensary. Cannabis franchising would utilize the same basic franchise model and export it to the cannabis industry. By adding these franchising features, the normally risky cannabis field becomes more measured and secured by requiring that that the franchisee follow pre-established standard operating procedures and already successful business models. So this story goes on to kind of highlight Curio Wellness a vertically integrated Maryland medical cannabis company, which gives an example of how they want to um, tackle the franchising model. Curio created a social equity fund that would allow applicants to own the franchise. The $30 million fund would be able to provide up to 93% of the startup capital needed for a location, meaning that the applicant needs much less of their own initial funding to get involved in their model. The basic idea around this type of franchising in cannabis is that a franchisee starts earning profits and pays down the loan. They'll be eligible to buy out the fund at a predetermined buyout multiple. This results in the franchisee eventually owning the store 100%. It's important to note that I'm highlighting Curio Wellness Program because of the associated fund they have connected to it. There's also, um, you know, there's been one cannabis, a Denver, Colorado-based company. Simply put, the franchise model could be utilized in the cannabis industry in a way that allows for funding to be disseminated equally while also ensuring it goes more it goes to more applicants, allows for more growth, and creates long-term ownership. With more states joining the legal cannabis market in the U.S., encouraging the franchise model could drastically change the way social equity applicants get involved with, stay involved in, and to and continue to grow in the larger cannabis industry. So my comment on this was, theoretically, I love the idea. But practically, we have to understand that people have been tapping into this model and have, and there has been some predatory type of contracts put into place. And so I think it's all in the details and the devil is in the details. And it's all about, again, execution and transparency. So I'm Roz McCarthy signing off for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Would love for you guys to comment. I think this franchising model is uh, very, very interesting. And um, 
especially coming out of uh, Los Angeles, um, a couple of very prominent social equity figures were uh, had their ideas or had their proposals struck down because they were trying to create a, a franchising model. And uh, now we've now we're in the mess that we are in, uh, where a lot yeah. of the. Uh, uh, where a lot of these people have been disenfranchised. So um, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and if these uh, franchise models do end up working. I know a lot of people will be really, really pissed off here in L.A. Yep. Troy, you've got the last word. We're, we're about at time. We are at time. I just want to thank you, Raj, for even pointing out the predatory uh, licensing uh, graphs that are going on as well. This seems to be awesome. The vertical is definitely a larger business and larger cost. So we will see. We yeah, will I think... Super interesting, Roz. I was uh, when I read it, I was like, "Well, this seems like duh. Why didn't Why don't we think of this before?" But I guess we have, and hopefully, it'll work out. Some good lawyers will get on board and and make it happen. But we are at the top of the hour. That was a great show. If you missed any of it, make sure you catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Jaja Simone Brown. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. <laughs> so that one.